0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show.
1: They were not jailed because they were journalists. They were jailed because sentence had been passed on them because the court has decided that they had broken the Official Secrets Act. Mm. So if we believe in the rule of law, they have every right to appeal the judgment and to point out why the judgment is wrong if they consider it wrong.
0: Aung San Suu Chi's embarrassment of the 1991 Nobel Peace Prize Committee continues. My guests Terry Stiasny and James Boyes will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Poland's promise to defend Hungary from the EU, the least plausible cover story in the history of espionage, and would you buy a car because a tennis player told you to. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Terry Stiasny, the author and journalist, and James Boyes, US policy analyst and author most recently of Clinton's War on Terror. Welcome both. We will start with the not terrifically surprising news that Hungary has discovered that it does still have one friend in the EU. Following yesterday's decision by the European Parliament to pursue unprecedented disciplinary action against Hungary for an assortment of malfeasances, Poland has said it will block any sanctions imposed upon its neighbour. Not for... For the first time, two of the countries which seemed most keen to join the EU seem among the least keen to abide by its rules. Um, Terry, to yesterday's vote by the MEPs, which is a, was an unprecedented uh, occurrence, was it basically fair enough? Does, does Hungary need jerking into line?
1: Uh, yes, I think it does. If you look at what people are saying about, particularly, say, the treatment of uh, academics in Hungary, the way that Hungary is becoming uh, more and more illiberal. I mean, you had, you know, over, well, on the on the count of people that voted over two thirds of the MEPs saying that you know they were in favour of some kind of of sanctions against Hungary of having what they call Article Seven. We're getting to learn all the bits of the the EU, you know, every article there is on the EU um, about losing voting rights. It split uh, various parties. It split um, you know the right wing sort of and centre right uh, blocks. But I don't think it's very surprising, as you say, that um, Poland has now weighed in and said that uh, the EU, the president said the EU is an imaginary community and this is only deepening divides between kind of Western Europe and some of uh, the newer member countries in in Central and Eastern Europe because the Polish government itself is under an EU investigation um, and saying because they're saying that there's been political interference in the judiciary. Uh, But I think one of the things, the problems is that this process, as you say, it hasn't been done before and it's so incredibly hard to do because uh apparently now to get these sanctions through the next stages through the european council you've got to have all the countries unanimously agreeing that there should be some kind of sanctions against hungary and now this seems to be to me to be a system that is you know is designed never to work because how likely is it that you're going to get a unanimous agreement about the actions of one country and whether that's breaking the rules
0: well as poland has confirmed it's going to be extremely unlikely and i suspect you're entirely right that the system was designed uh for exactly that purpose, so it couldn't actually impose serious sanctions on a member state. Um, that, all that being the case, James, and however right uh, the MEPs were to vote against Hungary, was it actually a smart idea? Because it does allow Viktor Orban to go back to Budapest and say, you see, the unaccountable ivory tower elites are attempting to suppress the will of the common person of Hungary for whom I alone am standing, etc. I mean, it's
2: a massive result for him, isn't it? It is. Uh, I guess, ultimately, uh, at some point, uh, certain nations, I think, are going to have to decide whether they want to have true independence and the ability to um, oppress their own people and implement whatever laws they like, or they're going to continue to be members of the European uh, Union project. Of course, I think, uh, from an EU point of view, uh, with uh, the United Kingdom having left uh, and announced it's leaving two years ago with that triggering coming up in 2019, the idea of any other countries leaving uh, in this kind uh, from the East... uh, threaten some degree of contagion potentially but as was rightly being uh, referred to previously by Terry, the idea that you've got the requirement for unanimity across nation states to impose sanctions of this nation and nature um is, is Palpably unworkable. It would be like trying to get absolute uniformity across the United uh, Nations to implement any kind of action. It's hard enough to get uh, anything through five nations uh, on the Security Council, let alone all nations altogether. So it does, I think, look like this was very much designed as a way to to prevent the imposition of these kind of sanctions.
0: That being the case, Terry, is there is it possible that the EU just never considered that any country once joining the EU would embark on the kind of backslide into authoritarianism such as we have seen? in Hungary and Poland, and therefore they don't really have any particular clues as to what they can do about it.
1: Uh, I think that is... You know, in, entirely possible. I think you know if we look back at you know the late 80s and the early 90s and the sort of the transitions, and we we thought, "Hooray! This is you know this is a one-way street. This uh, these countries are leaving authoritarianism and they are transitioning to democracy." And I remember you know writing and studying things about it at the time. And I think we thought it was complete. It was unlikely that they would backslide. We thought that you know, and particularly we thought that joining the EU by agreeing to abide by the membership rules of the club, that that is uh, some kind of an irreversible process. And I think we did think that, you know, once you've established a democracy in these countries, that it's going to be unlikely that there was this backsliding. And, you know, we were unfortunately, obviously wrong about that. But, you know, we've got to maintain the line. These are the rules of the club. There are certain, you know, there are prescriptions about the rule of law and about human rights. And, you know about any you know, one of the questions in Hungary is to do with you know potential misuse of of European money now some people are making the argument that we there should be some kind of a legal rather than a political case against Hungary I don't think that's that really holds i mean that that it's it it is a political action if you try to take sanctions against a member country that's inevitably political but yeah you've got to hold the line on on the rules you know and and try to to keep people in the fold if possible but you can't allow people to to flagrantly violate sort of democratic standards and then say but oh but it's all right you know you can still be in the gang
0: but james does it strike you that there's much prospect of any of this improving victor orban's behavior
2: I doubt it. Quite frankly, I think your your your, your initial question to me was, was spot on. Quite frankly, it will allow him to return back to his group of supporters and say, "Look, you know, this is uh, uh, this is the elite oppressing uh, this this nation, effectively, and almost you know placating, playing a sort of a Donald Trump role uh, within the nation." I think that what this does do um, is very much reveal uh, what. what Hopefully, has always been true, which is that history is not a one-way street, and that just because uh, uh, patterns seem to be leading in one direction does not mean it's it's irreversible. It's interesting, I think, that when uh, we were looking at the uh, the collapse of the the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union and the related system, that when we were looking at bringing these nations in uh, to the sort of uh, the Western family of nations uh, from Central and Eastern Europe, it was led initially by NATO and not by the European Union, and that was done for a variety of reasons, not at least of which was to extend. A security guarantees to these nations, but also because there was initial great hesitancy on the part of the European Union and its member states. The idea of trying to, you know, uh, bring these nations in at time of uh, of relative uh, financial difficulty in the early 1990s, but also the sense of you know what will that do for the cultural dynamic of Europe and the idea that you know these relatively authoritarian states coming into the European Union with a perhaps a, a lack of uh, history of of democ- democracy and uh, rule of the law, uh, and perhaps all too uh, too late, perhaps. That- it's being borne out
0: Okay, well, let's move along now. Uh, When Aung San Suu Kyi was garlanded with the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1991, you would have got decent odds against the prospect of her 27 years later, presiding over sectarian pogroms in her own country and defending the imprisoning of journalists who attempted to report on them. It turns out that this would have been a depressingly perspicacious wager. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Hanoi, Aung San Suu Kyi insisted that Reuters reportists, Wa Loon and Kyo So-U, had not been imprisoned and for being journalists she also said that the situation in Rakhine state from which 700,000 Rohingya Muslims have fled in recent months could have been handled better which is indeed one way of putting it um James, does she expect anyone to believe any of this, at least outside
2: Myanmar? Who, who is her audience here when she spouts this fairly obvious nonsense? It is difficult to tell, isn't it, quite frankly? It's um, it, it's a, a tragic tale, I think, isn't it, of, of heroes who who, who live uh, beyond uh, their initial uh, phase to have to then uh, wage uh, wage authority and then uh, run, in, run, in this case, uh, obviously a very uh, uh, problematic nation. Uh, when we think about what it is that's being said here, it really is is quite remarkable. The idea that they've uh, they've been found guilty of breaking the Official Secrets Act and are facing seven years in prison. Uh, when you think about the uh, the the, uh, the prison spell that other people have served for for far less, the idea that you were going to start putting uh, journalists in prison. The thing that I, I found um, fascinating was the idea that um, the, the wage the war upon journalists, which the UN is accusing Minamar um, of uh, of waging here, uh, is <laughs> is being supported by. Um, none other than Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, of course, uh, Donald Trump knows a thing or two about waging war against journalists. Um, so I think there is a, a, an issue there. But quite frankly, when we look at what's happening um, in Myanmar, it really is quite indefensible. And uh, there is clearly, I think, uh, going to be a big pushback against this. And I think she risks being being stripped of uh, uh, of, of the garlands that she's been uh, on with in the past at this rate. Uh,
0: she has been uh, stripped of some several prizes. There doesn't appear, as far as I can figure out to be any mechanism uh, for rescinding somebody's Nobel Prize for Peace. Um, Terry, she doesn't have many defenders left, and quite rightly so. There are a few, I think, still clinging to this idea that none of this is really her fault, that she's still being held host she's sort of being held hostage by the military, but there wouldn't be anything stopping her, would there, from appearing at an international forum in Hanoi and going, yeah, I think this is terrible, not in my name, and so forth.
1: Well, yes, yeah, so I think this is sort of, you know, collapse of the early 90s optimism part two on this programme. Uh, a a yes. seamless
0: link I wish I had <laughs> spotted. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, yes, as you say, I mean, it could be possibly one explanation is that she's worried about her own power. And as you said, you know, this is someone who was literally held hostage by the military for, for years and years. And um, I mean, I think one of the facts that we don't quite realise from out here is just how much... Myanmar had been a closed society for so long. I mean, if you think it wasn't that long ago that you know, suddenly we as journalists wouldn't be allowed to visit there. We wouldn't have been allowed to travel to parts of the country outside of the capital, let alone see what was going on in in Rakhine or in in other parts of the country. Um, and as you say, this you know, these Official Secrets Act date back even before the military regime, back to the colonial era, and and that kind of culture, you know, despite Aung San Suu Kyi being there, hasn't doesn't seem to have changed at all. The sad thing is that, you know, because people in the West had such high hopes that she would really change things you know this argument that she's saying that oh well you know they had broken that these journalists had broken the law that she's trying to say that their conviction had nothing to do with freedom of expression and it was you know because they had police documents you know it it, it isn't borne out and you know people like Human Rights Watch have been pointed out that you know the trial that they went through didn't bear out the rule of law in itself it, it didn't have an independent judiciary it didn't have respect for the evidence and that you know any, any kind of change um hasn't really nearly gone far enough
0: but james as terry quite correctly points out uh, myanmar or burma as it then was was for for decades a, a society barely less any walled off and opaque than north korea is now is it is it retreating into that you just have have the the generals who run the place decided that they kind of felt more comfortable with that all along
2: I'll be honest, I don't speak as an expert on the region, but uh, I think the suggestion here clearly is that uh, uh, the optimism that clearly uh, was was borne out by uh, this new administration uh, is, is is fading to, to a point of oblivion, quite frankly. Um, I think that what's tragic is, is that when you look at the statements that are coming out, uh, you almost begin to say, well, we, we can equate these with the sort of uh, this, this disdain for truth, uh, which seems to be spreading, you know, we're going to be talking uh, shortly I think about um, material that was broadcast on RT with regards to uh, an excuse about certain state activity we can think about Donald Trump's complete disdain for truth suggesting today that uh, despite uh, uh, recordings to the the contrary 3,000 people have not just died uh, in Puerto Rico when you can start delivering um, clearly spurious material like this uh, we are almost in a a through the looking glass mentality and the idea that uh, this individual who has been so uh, honoured in the past for her, uh, her adherence to human rights and the suffering that she's gone through appears to be passing into that uh, group of, uh, of individuals is lamentable indeed.
0: OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Terry Stiasny and James Boyce. Coming up next, why the dog ate my homework has been replaced in the lexicon of desperate excuse-making by We Went
3: to See Salisbury Cathedral. Monocle's Entrepreneurial September issue is jam packed with advice, wisdom, and heartening tales of the folks around the world who are building better businesses. We meet the startups pursuing careers in everything from sharpening up the stationery business to surfers helping recycle ocean plastic and mull over why starting older is sometimes better for business. And if the working world isn't for you, well, then there's a career in the French Foreign Legion to consider. Elsewhere we discuss the late Francisco Franco's next move, visit a seemly startup space in Provence, and bed down in a Danish residence par excellence. We also take you on a design-minded tour of a Tokyo restaurant opening that you may well have heard about, and talk trainers with the man behind New Balance. We also sip wine in Kefalonia before a last meal with the Beirut cookbook author Anissa Halou. The opportunity-filled September issue of Monocle is on all good newsstands now.
0: You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and James Boyes. Now, when the United Kingdom named the suspects in the Salisbury poisoning case, it was reasonable to suppose that the two men, Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Borisov, would never be heard from again, including by their friends and families. However, the pair, or two men, claiming those names, have turned up on Russian state propaganda outlet RT, denying that they are GRU agents dispatched to Salisbury to commit murder with nerve agent, and claiming instead to be weirdly focused cathedral enthusiasts who travel to london for the weekend for the specific purpose of visiting the salisbury spire on two consecutive day trips before returning to moscow now who among us panel has never taken a four-hour flight to a foreign capital for 72 hours in order to go to the same minor tourist attraction on consecutive day trips before flying home i mean i'm convinced aren't you
1: I'm sure they talk about absolutely nothing else in the Russian fitness industry than British cathedrals that you should probably visit. It's it's, it's, it's
0: a known fact that Russian fitness instructors are extremely interested uh, in, in British ecclesiastical architecture.
2: I, I case closed, I think. It, it, well, there we are. Yeah. Done. Uh, let's move on. Um, I think one, when when you when you re- just consider this, I mean, what I was saying <laughs> before the break with regard to um, just the, the, the sheer audacity uh, of some of the statements which are coming out, again, this is not even a left, right, east, west thing anymore. This idea that we're moving into, you know, a through-the-looking-glass mentality um, and that we've now got, you know, Putin and his RT network effectively having the the bare face to put these individuals forward and to try and get anybody to believe this and the terrible thing is some people must be some well, people must be believing this nonsense, which is which is shocking, quite frankly.
0: Well, 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 some people do, I think, because people pick a side and then, you know, retroactively justify everything that side says or does. And, and you know, there are people, obviously, making efforts to do this. But, but Terry, this strikes me as the interesting question. As, as James, like any sentient individual, understands, <laughs> the, their story is ridiculous. It's absolutely obvious nonsense. So the question is. Is this being disseminated by the Russian state because the GRU are just terrible disorganized spies? Or do they know this story's garbage? They're putting it out there because it's garbage. And it's it's just a, you know, ongoing part of a huge disinformation scheme to cause bewilderment, chaos, confusion, and so forth.
1: Well, I think, you know, as you say, yes, it's garbage. I mean, I, you know, I make up political thrillers for for a living and you know if i wrote this the whole salisbury story down my editor would come back to me with sort of big queries and question marks all over the manuscripts well, my, my, going my, could my, this really happen this my, my parallel nonsense, but...
0: thought was n- not of course that my copy is ever late but if it, if my copy was late how far i'd get into this excuse with a straight face
1: <laughs> but i mean yeah we sort of it's superficially funny i mean i've Unfortunately, I think it is actually quite serious, and I think you know what the Russian government is doing is effectively kind of taunting the UK authorities by saying, "Look, here we are; we've got these guys." this is their story, what on earth are you going to do about it? Because, you know, there's been, you know, we've heard from, from the government, we've heard from Theresa May, we've heard from the Met Police, you know, look, this is all the evidence that we have, that we've seen, you know, we've s- found traces of nerve agent in the hotel where these guys have stayed. Uh, you know, we are putting, trying to put out, you know, European arrest warrants against them. And this just seems to be, to be Russia's way of saying, yeah, we know all that. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And we're just going to sit here and we're going to, you know, do this soft interview with the people that we can find at a day's notice a day after Vladimir Putin said, oh, yes, I'm sure we're going to be able to track these couple of tourists down. You know, you know, it's just sort of saying, well, c- come and come and find us. You know what? You know, just is almost sort of saying we're taunting you. We can we can do what we like.
0: Uh- James, as Terry correctly points out, it, it, this is from the it would be funny if it wasn't serious file. Uh, you know, we should remember that one person was killed inadvertently, apparently, by this attack. Uh, the original targets of it were extremely seriously ill. Two other people, at least, that I can think of were also poisoned, uh, mercifully non-fatally. Um, it's just, though, of the many weirdnesses of this appearance, how weird is it that they have presented a story in which they confirmed that the two suspects were in the vicinity where the crime was committed with the opportunity to commit it? I mean, if they were desperately, definitely trying to distract attention from it, they'd just say, no, here they are. They weren't even in Great Britain.
2: Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think that what it does reveal is, is Putin's utter disdain for the rule of law uh, and for maintaining uh, even cordial relationships, quite frankly, with uh, uh, with Great Britain at this point. and And by extension, its allies. Um, and it really is uh, farcical. I mean, I mean as, as Terry said, you basically couldn't make this up. Uh, here we are.
0: Well, they have. Well, they have, <laughs> indeed.
2: Um, uh, but again, I think, you know, in, in days gone past, perhaps uh, there would have been a more uh, credible attempt to present a serious considered approach about what it was that was going on, but as you sort of alluded to in your introduction, this is just farcical. I mean, it it, it can be Dis, you know, taken apart and and broken down and revealed to be you know farcical at, at, at every single level. Uh, there's no attempt here even to present you know a, a credible uh, response here. It's so utterly incredible um, that it, it just beggars belief. I think,
0: I mean, Terry, if, if we pursue the idea that this is part of some grand disinformation strategy by Russia, does it seem odd that they haven't considered, I guess, long-term reputational damage to Russia? Russians being, of course, a famously proud and patriotic people because there is an element in which this does just make the country look ridiculous.
1: Uh, but maybe it also makes people think, well, you know, they seem to be able to get away. It, it, it distracts attention to a certain extent from other things that are going on. I mean, we're all sitting here talking about it. The whole sort of Internet is is discussing it and kind of satirizing it and and making jokes. Meanwhile, you know, there are other things going on in Russia. Like, for instance, one of the, the members of Pussy Riot, the sort of protest group, is complaining of having been poisoned. You know, the, it sort of does partly distract attention from other more serious things are going on. And from also, you know, the fact that no one is likely to be brought to justice for, as you say, you know, one person died, several other people made seriously ill and and all sorts of other unexplained, you know, things that happen to Russians elsewhere in the world who you don't like Vladimir Putin very much.
0: Just as a final thought on this, James, and, th- and thinking about this in terms of the diplomatic relationship, such as it still is between the United Kingdom and Russia, ha- have we not here passed the threshold? Do you think at which you just invite the country in question to to pack up its
2: embassy and leave? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's getting to that point. Um, you know, the only difficulty now, obviously, is that uh, uh, Western nations, including Great Britain, are to a certain extent dependent upon Russia for uh, natural gas in particular. So the threat of uh, potential um, retaliatory action there is a, is a problem. We have obviously taken uh, direct action against Vladimir Putin's uh, oligarchical ring. Uh, most notably, I guess, uh, who's feeling the pinch of this is Roman Abramovich, who's now suddenly uh, decided he's now going to be an Israeli citizen, although that's not going to help him very much. With regard to getting an extension at Stamford Bridge, but um, at some point you've got to say, well, hang about a second. This is this is effectively a declaration of war by all means, other than an open uh, statement. Uh, when we are seeing the use of chemical weapons on British soil um, to an extent where you know British citizens are now dying, uh, we've seen the expulsion of, of diplomatic staff both from Washington and from London. You know, you have very, relatively few steps now short of a full. extension expulsion and the closure of the British of the Amer- of the Russian embassy.
0: Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, the triumph of Japanese tennis player Naomi Osaka in the final of the US Open was overshadowed in much of the world by the controversy over the treatment of her opponent, Serena Williams, by match officials and subsequently by sections of the media. Not in Japan, however, where Osaka has been elevated to superstar status. And quite rightly, she's the first Japanese tennis player to bring home a Grand Slam title. She has now been announced, among her many other sponsorships, as a global ambassador for Nissan Motors. Um, Terry, does it strike you that there's an obvious synergy between a tennis player and a car? Because, I mean, it's one of those things that becomes axiomatic that, that sports people, successful sports people, are thought to be good uh, vehicles, no pun intended, for sponsorship. But really, do, do people actually make that? I, I don't know. I don't own a car and I don't really want very much tennis. So I, I'm probably not the ideal target here. But
1: yeah, I think uh, a car car sponsorship is less obvious. But then, when you think about the business of sponsorship more generally, uh, you know, football players are sponsored by airlines. You know, True you have um, so obviously they they see that as a as a way of selling more cars if they're associated with a successful tennis player. I mean, there are more obvious sort of links between some of the other companies, and it's just amazing the impact that this one win has had on on a whole load of business. Her, her racket sponsor has uh, the shares gone up 11 percent and and the watch she wears and the the noodles that she's sponsored by all these companies have seen their their shares go up as a result of her winning and you know apparently one of the the biggest uh, issues will be when her when her trainer contract comes up at the end of the year and the trainer companies are already battling it out so obviously some some of us are influenced by you know which which trainers we think that if we put on the pair of trainers that the great tennis player wears then we'll be much better tennis players or much better runners or whatever it might be I mean it's obviously it's not true but it it obviously has a certain you know certain impact and certainly a big business
0: impact. Yeah, the, the trainers that were going to turn me into a superstar athlete have have not as yet been patented <laughs> You Just haven't got the right ones. You haven't uh, got the right <laughs> well, ones. Clearly, uh, James, but th- of the oddnesses about using sports persons as uh, you know, avatars of your product, James, the thing that strikes me as weird about it is sports people lose actually mostly.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and and can lose huge. Um, You know, I was just sitting here thinking about Tiger Woods, uh, for example, as someone who, not that long ago, uh, was uh, wanted by everybody, not least of which uh, Nike, for example, with whom he had an un. Unprecedented uh, sponsorship deal and not only did he start losing tennis, he certainly lost his way and became effectively persona non grata for, for many, many years. So the idea that these companies are going to put their entire stake effectively with one individual who, as you say, uh, is uh, entering into uh, a, a competition in which most people lose. Uh, the well, odds are that you will lose and, uh, and lose huge on occasion. What's interesting though, I think, about the Japanese market with regard to advertising and celebrity endorsement is that for many, many years it was a closed market and you would routinely see people from, uh, from Hollywood in particular going over there uh, and, and endorsing products that had no resale value beyond Japan. Um, if anybody saw uh, the Lost in Translation movie, for example, that speaks to that, the Bill Murray Indeed. character travelling over there um, and, and endorsing a product he seems to know very little about in a culture that is completely alien to him. Um, that has obviously changed with, with uh, greater travel and access to that market. But Japan is not um, a stranger, I think, to rather bizarre forms of celebrity endorsement.
0: Uh, Terry, there's been another, I guess, curious quirk in the relationship this week we've seen between large corporations and sports stars. This was Nike last week unveiling their cloistered association with Colin Kaepernick, the still unemployed uh, NFL quarterback, and and, and this in a world where, you know, Blake Bortles still has a contract. Um, But it seems to have actually worked out quite well for them. They have sold a lot of kit since that, announcement was made.
1: Well, I was about to say, it does seem like sports brands in particular are willing to go for that high risk. Yes, you risk the fact that your star may sort of implode uh, either professionally or personally, but they obviously are willing to take that high risk. As you say, with Colin Kaepernick, we saw, you know, people on the margins, you know, setting light to their trainers and cutting the Nike swoosh off their socks and so on. But... They have sold a lot more stuff than they have, you know, had burned, and it does seem in this instance for Nike um, to to have worked. So maybe there's there's some kind of new branding strategy that says, well, you know, take take the high risk you know, the high risk strategy and, and that if you win, you win big.
2: I think it's interesting that uh, in that instance where there's clearly been a, a challenge with the American presidency to contrast it with a, um, a, a sweet tea manufacturer who was endorsing the Dixie Chicks uh, World Tour uh, back in the early 2000s when, of course, uh, uh, they opened their concert here in London uh, and, and attacked the president. That, of course, led to the cancellation of that, uh, that uh, endorsement. And now, obviously, we have a very different situation uh, with Donald Trump and, uh, and Nike
0: that does bring us to the end of today's show James boys and Terry Stiastny thanks for joining us at Midori House the show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco researched by Martha Libri. our studio manager was George McDonough. more music next at 1900 it's The Urbanist there's more on the day's big stories on the daily at 2200 Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 London I'm Andrew Muller thanks for listening